All of us are on a complicated journey of faith, pursuing truth and deeper knowledge of God. But how do we know we're doing it right? Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing, and it can be a painful and difficult journey, and far too often we are not given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson, and one of my best friends, Marty Frederick, and I have agreed to join each other in creating exactly that kind of space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. We want to look honestly at the issues and questions plaguing the Christian church today and to genuinely seek out what it means to live like Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. We believe that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but perhaps one of its greatest allies. We think that the Christian life is more about asking the right questions than it is about finding the answers. And we believe we are being called to continually ask those questions, renewing our minds and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining us on that journey. Well, welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I'm one of your hosts, Josh Patterson, and unfortunately, uh, my friend and co-host, Marty Frederick, was not able to join us today, but uh, that is okay. We have a super fun and interesting guest with us who I'm excited to introduce, and so um, with us today is Dr. Dennis Edwards. How are you doing today, uh, Dr. Edwards? I'm doing well, and uh, really good to be with you. I can call you Josh. Yeah, Josh is perfect. Can I call you Dennis or would you prefer yes. Dr. Edwards? You can call me Dennis. That's fine. Dennis. All right. Sounds good. Cool. Well, thanks for uh, taking some time to, to hang out uh, this morning. I appreciate it. Um, and before we jump in, we have a question that we ask all of our guests that come on the show. Mm-hmm. And it's super important to Marty and I, <laughs> uh, but you're probably going to laugh at the question. So here, here's our question. What is, or who rather is your favorite ice hockey team? <laughs> <laughs> Wow. You know, uh, this is awkward because I didn't really follow any ice hockey and I hardly ever, I've never been to a game. Um, so since I'm in the Chicago Metro, I have to say the Blackhawks. Oh, there you go. Marty would be very pleased. He is a huge Blackhawks fan and he is also in the Chicago area. Yeah. But, uh, no worries. You are definitely uh, not our first, nor will you be our last guest uh, who does not follow <laughs> ice hockey. <laughs> Maybe I should because the you know live games are exciting. But. Oh, they're very exciting. Yeah, and I, I play ice hockey as well. So it's something I'm, I'm passionate about. And I'm a huge Washington yeah. Capitals fan because uh, okay. I'm, I'm in the D.C. area. I'm in uh, Gaithersburg, Maryland. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> cool. Thanks for, uh, <laughs> for playing along. We appreciate sure. it. Um, so for, for listeners who might not be uh, familiar with you, can you fill us in a little bit? Like, who are you? Uh, what do you do? Maybe give us a little bit of like your faith upbringing. Sure. Well, currently I am associate professor of New Testament at North Park Theological Seminary in Chicago. And um, I have traveled around a bit in my theological journey, which is why a lot of people might not know me. I haven't been at one place for a ridiculously long amount of time because I think I've been trying to find a home. I grew up in a, uh, a, a maybe some would consider an odd theological place. Um, I grew up in New York. That's not the odd place, but the church, <laughs> the church I attended might be considered odd. It had oneness theology, 
Jesus only, you know, no Trinity, a holiness church. And I, so I was not exposed to a breadth of theological diversity um, as a young person. I didn't even, we didn't think anybody else was saved but us. So it was a hard, um, it was hard for me to uh, accept that there were other Christians out there until I went to college. But just real quickly, I did get a degree in chemical engineering from college, but I didn't work as an engineer. I was a, a math and science teacher for years. And then I went off to seminary. I went to Trinity Divinity School at the urging of a pastor. Who, I didn't know anything about seminaries either. But I went there and then I came back to New York and I served the church and I started a church in Brooklyn, New York. Then I moved to D.C. and spent uh, about 17 years in the Washington, D.C. area, where I did my doctoral studies at the Catholic University of America. So my PhD is in New, New Testament. Technically, it's in biblical studies. My emphasis is New Testament. And then um, I moved from D.C. to Minneapolis, and I served the church there, a covenant church, Sanctuary Covenant Church, and, and was ordained or transferred my ordination to the Evangelical Covenant Church. And that's what um, uh, North Park Theological Seminary is part of the Evangelical Covenant Church. So that's a quick part of my academic and ministerial journey. I was a pastor for about 30 years and taught adjunct for, for many years as well. And now I'm full-time. I'm married, have four adult children and four grandchildren. Thanks. Yeah, awesome. Cool. I think, uh, so something interesting side note, uh, the lead pastor at the church that I currently work at. So I'm a full-time high school and young adult pastor at a church called Seneca Creek. And uh, the lead pastor, Mark Tyndall, uh, went to TEDS as well. And so I think you got, you had mentioned you had some interaction with Yes, we overlapped um, there. And in fact, a few years ago, I was in Minnesota and I blurbed a book and, uh, and Mark saw my name and reached out to me. So we reestablished contact after years because he happened to see my name somewhere. So yeah, we were at TEDS at the same time. <laughs> oh, very cool. <laughs> Sweet. Well, yeah, so um, this morning we wanted to have you on because you have a new book that came out recently. If you weren't aware of that, you wrote a book. So well done. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> and it's called Might from the Margins. Uh, yes. And it's a, it's a wonderful book. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, and I know that it's, I mean, I think it's a super helpful book uh, that adds so much uh, to the, the conversations. It's an insanely timely book, especially mm. for the, the kind of... Um, things we're you know going through today uh yeah. in our society and so with that in mind why did you write this book and who did you write it for yeah thank you well um the why is is that there were three streams in my life that were coming together at the same time uh, and i'll be brief with this but the first stream has come from years of pastoral experience and that experience is uh, in light of my background as an African-American growing up in New York, but in the later 60s, being middle to later 60s, being bused uh, to uh, another neighborhood in Queens, that my life was such, and I think that a lot of African-Americans can relate to this, where I was the only or the first black person in different spaces. Um, and then when I got to seminary, there was a lot of talk about racial reconciliation. That was the phrase that was used all the time. And I learned that people were thinking that, seemed like white people were thinking that to mean how they should somehow be conciliatory to black people to show up in their spaces. So racial reconciliation was taken as white people kind of allowing us into their spaces. Um, so even though we had proximity, there was not a sharing of power. So that was one stream. The second stream that kind of fueled me was um, 
were the writings of uh, Howard Thurman, particularly his book, Jesus and the Disinherited, which I came to a little bit later in my Christian development and, uh, and thought how these writings from the 40s are so relevant to us today in terms of why should African-Americans, or as he puts it, people with their backs against the wall, why should it even be Christian? And then the third thing that came together is I wrote a, a commentary. It's more so a pastoral commentary, although it has uh, an academic foundation to it. The Story of God series is an, is an academic series with a lot of practical application. And uh, I wrote a First Peter commentary that spoke of, uh, that treats this notion of being um, alien, stranger, part of the diaspora when it comes to our faith. So those three things came together and I said, you know, I really feel like we are missing in our conversations about church and race and intercultural dynamics in Christian spaces. We're missing the conversation about power and about what marginalized people, um, uh, not, not what we just bring for white people, but who we are and, where, and what power we have. So yeah, thank you for that. Oh, yeah. you said for whom is the book written, right? That was yeah. the second question. Well, I write the book to center uh, the voices and the and the uh, and the bodies and the persons who are not part of the dominant culture. So, you know, I, I don't know if you're familiar with the blockbuster movie um, Black Panther, but there's a scene in Black Panther where where the Jabari tribe are approached to to help out the people of Wakanda, and uh, and this white agent starts to explain things, and the Jabari tribe start to bark, and they actually drown out this white agent's voice. And I laughed at that and I wanted to cheer in the movie theater because a lot of times white people are the ones explaining uh, things even uh, in the place of, or presumably for African-American people. So their voices keep getting centered even in conversations around us. The Jabari tribe uh, drowned out Agent Ross because he didn't need to be speaking at that moment. Right? So I'm finding that a lot of our conversations about race, ethnicity, about power, about privilege, about church life, about intercultural ministry, all of that still centers white people and how they should get it or how they should change or how they need to make room for us or even the language of empowering us. So my take is, no, I want to talk to uh, folks who are pres presumably on the margins and talk about what we have and what we bring for each other and then, of course, to the larger Christian uh, witness. Yeah, that, that's so good and so helpful. And that, I mean, that idea is something that just for complete transparency, uh, this has been a journey I've been on for, I guess, uh, the past like six months or so. I got connected with this thing called Jesus Collective, and we did an intensive, uh, you know, six-week um, online learning cohort. And it was around the time of uh, the, um, oh my goodness gracious, I'm drawing a blank, which is insanely... Yeah, so uh it was yeah in it wasn't the the murder of george floyd prior to that um the gentleman who is running and was uh shot oh, down in the yeah Maude arbor yeah forgive me so it, was, it happened right around that time we were focusing heavily on on a racial reconciliation we read thurman's book uh Robert. that's where i interacted with drew hart for the first time that's where i got connected ah. with you for the first time awesome. so um but yeah this your book was insanely helpful to me mm. I appreciate that, that perspective. So I, I appreciate that. And I kind of want to jump like right into it and, and not pull any punches. And mm -hmm. so you talk about the gospel being a great equalizer, but then mm -hmm. you also point out that a gospel that is simply made up of like uh, propositions about Jesus has mm -hmm. been used uh, to construct and actually even to defend unjust systems 
yeah. particularly by white evangelicals. Can you kind of unpack some of that for us? Yeah, I will briefly. What I mean is that, uh, and I this has been part of many of our experiences, but I'm speak personally that in my college years, you know, campus ministries were abounding, and and one particular group taught people how to do evangelistic um, um, gatherings or or share the gospel in some way, and of course, it consisted of a concise uh, presentation of a few points, right? propositions in essence. And, uh, and if you could get somebody to believe that and pray that, then, then that's good. You know, they, they, they're now part of the kingdom. But, but none of these presentations uh, uh, caused anybody to, to confront the way that they were thinking about other people. It was, it was about some beliefs about uh, Jesus that I think are good, but, uh, but truncated, incomplete. In other words, to say that Jesus rose from the dead is great. And I, and I think we ought to believe this. I mean, it's just fundamental to what it means. But believing that Jesus rose for dead and believing that Jesus lived should also mean something about my identity. Because when we tell people to repent, we're not just saying uh, stop believing that Jesus didn't rise and now believe that he did. We're saying reorient your life. And that's the part that was missing, was this sense of repentance that would reorient life. So those very same Christians that were teaching us how to uh, give the propositions were also Christians who were at the time, this is now in my life, the late 70s, early 80s, disappointed that Rhodesia had become Zimbabwe when I come into college and, and arguing um, uh, to bolster apartheid in South Africa. Of course, they wouldn't admit that today, but they were, they were um, folks who who were uh, belittling the, the movement. I had one campus minister say to me, well, you know, if the blacks took over their country, they're gonna be Marxist, uh, they'll, uh, like, like what's happening in Zimbabwe. And they, they supported people like Falwell Sr., who was telling Christians to buy Krugerrands and support the South African apartheid regime. So you had Christians who were saying, say these propositions and you'll get right with God, yet in their own uh, rhetoric and lives, they were not, uh, for the affirming of of uh, the lives of black people in Africa or here, so that's kind of an example of what I mean. You could you can say propositions about Jesus and still be bolstering unjust systems. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's no uh, with just the propositions. There's no transformation of of character or anything like that. And um, I think part of that too has to do, and you pointed this out as well that. Um, we, with that like kind of propositional approach, it tends to focus on individuals, um, you know, salvation of individual souls um, and individualistic uh, understanding of sin. And that makes it very difficult for uh, us to be able to understand things like racism. And so what, how, why does that, you know, individualism kind of Right. Yeah. Very good. Thank you. Yeah, you caught that. I think I don't want to um, dismiss the individual, right? Because individuals make up the collectives, as you guys talked about Jesus Collective. The you 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 need so so salvation is for people, but the notion that we are being saved or we are being uh, gathered together as God's people means that we are being gathered together as a community of people. We are people together. Um, so there's, there's a communal aspect to what God is doing in us, right? Um, and, and sometimes I think that gets lost so that we tend to think of 
my own relationship with Christ. I get to go to heaven. We don't think about the way uh, evil has permeated the world and, and impacted systems and structures and such. And, and we might find ourselves part of a system or a structure and not even realize it. So, so yeah, I do think the focus on individual is, is perhaps even a uniquely American thing because we think about my own journey, my own uh, uh, travels, my own um, connection with God and forget that we are part of something. Yeah. Yeah. And that like the, the way I can kind of see that playing out in my own life is, um, one thing that uh, when I spoke with uh, Dr. Hart, Drew Hart, he shared with me that <clears throat> a lot of times we have to, we're afraid to have uh, the kind of, you know, conversations around racism uh, with family members uh, because we think, oh, they're, you know, older, different generation. That's just how they grew up. And he was like, no, you can't do that. You have to have these conversations. Yeah. And so I tried to have these conversations and the, I mean, it was the exact thing. Well, I, I'm not a racist. I don't, you know, stand on this street corner wave, waving a Nazi flag or a Confederate right, flag or something right. like that. I don't see any racist people near me, so it must not be a thing. And it's, I think that's like how I've experienced the hyper-individualism, uh, like negatively impacting the conversations. Well, you know, I appreciate that, Josh. I, I would say this, though. There's a, there's a certain inconsistency I've been, I've been noticing among, well, I'll say particularly evangelicals because that's the group I'm most familiar with. And, you know, I, I can remember, we're in a, a presidential election season right now, right? A campaign season. And I remember uh, back in the 80s, um, this is when uh, Reagan was running for the second term in 84 or so, that Christians kept talking about, or, or conservative Christians kept talking about uh, secular humanism. That was a phrase that kept getting used. And, um, and so what they were describing was, from their point of, point of view, was a system a way of thinking, a way of being, and that people were tapping into that and may not even, might not even realize it, whether it was through the movies they were watching in Hollywood, whether it was the decisions they were making about their families. So they were, so they had created this thing called secular humanism and that, or described, I don't know if they created it, but they were describing it. So here they were describing a system that people were tapping into and, and then they had to point that out, right? From their perspective was evil. Now, I'm not going to evaluate that, but I'm just saying the whole notion that there's a system that we can tap into, they're now decrying and saying there's no such thing as institutionalized uh, systems. Or, I, But yet, that was the very thing they were saying was the problem back in the 80s when they were pushing for Reagan to, be, uh, to get a second term. So, I, so I'm saying there are structural uh, issues. The question is, how are they working and, uh, and how are we tapping into them? And some of these structures are evil. And that's biblical from, uh, for, say, like Paul's images in Ephesians of, of principalities and powers. There are ways that the, that the demonic forces are at work in human institutions and structures. Yeah. Yeah, most, most definitely. And that, that was like, an, uh, I thought that, you know, pointing out that contradiction was super interesting. I, I had not thought about it that way before. Uh, and so I thought that I found that to be very helpful. Um, so in, in your book, uh, you used a phrase that I was not familiar with and okay. I'm, I might mispronounce it, uh, dyspora. Is that the, is that oh, diaspora? Diaspora. Yeah. Forgive mm -hmm. me. So you okay. talk about, uh, diaspora people and diaspora mm -hmm. Christians. Can you, yeah. what is that? <laughs> well, that, that came from my first Peter work predominantly because Peter starts out by saying he's writing to, uh, the elect God's people who are scattered, who are in the diaspora. 
Now, I won't bog you down with, um, with some of the academic discussion because some people think, well, that's a literal designation. People are geographically have been removed from their land. There's other scholars who say, well, it's a metaphorical designation. It's Christians who are, who are disconnected from, their, from, the, uh, from the world because they choose to follow Jesus. In either case, I'm not going to make a big deal about that now, but in either case, the, the distinction is that diaspora people are out of step with the dominant culture in some way, either because they are literally immigrants or they've been forced to migrate, or they are um, uh, marching to the beat of a different drum, to, to take another metaphor here. So Christians are like that. Christians are out of step with the broader society. But if I push this, if I take this metaphor to refer to people who have actually immigrated and, and make it literal now, take, instead of making it metaphorical, take it literal. What we see in immigrants, what we see in people who have been displaced, are people who have been out of step with the rest of, with the, the new culture that they're immersed in. Now, to add this Christian part to it is people who are out of step with the dominant culture yet follow Christ, they become the best illustrations of what the New Testament Christian is like. Because the New, Christ, New Testament Christian follower of Jesus, out of step with society, not at home in the world, that, that person is the model for what, uh, what it's like to be like Jesus. So yeah, so I, I, I try to argue from First Peter, but also from other examples, that when we see people who have emigrated, people who have been on the outside, people who have um, had to adapt to a new setting, uh, Willie Jennings in his Acts commentary, scholar Will, Willie Jennings, uh, he has described in colorful and beautiful language uh, just the alienation of diaspora, that when you're on the outside and you're, uh, but you have to function within this world, you're acceptance, he says, is always on loan. You're only evaluated in terms of what you bring to the empire. In this vulnerable state, your faith gets tested. That's what it's like to follow Jesus. So that, so I, I push this notion of a diaspora Christian in the book. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of where this idea um, comes from, might from the margins, right? The, yeah. Because those, the, the marginalized people group, and and you talk about how uh, the margin people with the, in the margins are in a, u a unique position to be some of like the best teachers of what it means to follow Jesus for the the exact kind of reasons you were just uh, referencing. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And so then, with that in mind, what like what do you think that Christians uh, from the dominant culture or from like top ends <laughs> of society desperately need to learn uh, from those on the margins? Um, yeah, I appreciate the question. I tend to hesitate, I'll be honest, Josh, I tend to hesitate answering that question. I've been asked before because, once again, answering that question tends to center white folks. It's saying, sure. you know, now you, uh, now that I'm watching you guys, what, what how should I be? <laughs> sure, and, sure. And that, but that's multifaceted, right? I mean, I don't know. I mean, in some ways, is it about faith? Is it about character? Is it about... Uh, uh, theological education. It's all of the above. So what I'm saying is, uh, in essence, maybe maybe rather than distilling it to uh, particular lessons and such, what I'm saying is it's a, it's a posture. It's a way of life, right? Mm -hmm. 
So, and it's a way of life that impacts all of us. It's a Philippians two way of life. It's a way of saying, I lay aside privilege so I can represent Jesus in the world. Jesus laid aside privilege to be with, to, uh, to uh, pitch his tent, uh, to take the first John imagery, I mean, sorry, John one imagery, uh, to be with humanity. I think that in some sense, that's the posture. So I'm not telling white people what to do. And, and when I used to do that in, in preaching in these multicultural churches and, and in other places, it usually was a great, th- a great experience. But there were also the exceptions of white people just would get so angry that they didn't want to listen to anything I had to say, dismissive of me, uh, trying to tell me what I should think and believe. And I get that. I, I get that. So I've said, you know, there's been a few hundred years of white Christians telling everybody else what to do and believe. So I'm not telling them what to do and believe. I'm just saying a way of life is the way of Jesus. And we see that with people who have had to uh, live a marginalized existence. So whatever that might mean for you, I, I, I just hope that that lesson would be absorbed in some way. Uh, so I hope I'm not copying out on that. I think what I'm trying to say is it'll, it'll depend. It'll depend on where you are I think, and who you are. Yeah, no, that I don't think it's a cop out at all. And I, I tried to like intentionally ask the question in a way to kind of pull that, you know, uh, that, you see what I'm saying? Good for you. I, good for you. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, because I, that like that was a, a mistake that early on, um, like I thought that way. I was like, oh, well then, okay, I should just go ask my black friends what I need to do. <laughs> and, yeah. And then uh, I luckily have some very gracious friends and have encountered very gracious people like yourself who are willing to um, gently point out why that's not necessarily the, the best question or the best way to, to go about asking these things. And um, that was a big learning experience for myself. Good. I'm Good. still learning. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm glad you're starting that journey as a younger person because uh, I do think it's a lifelong journey. I mean, look, I grew up in a church that would not let women not only not let them speak in church or, or speak a, a, a sermon in church, but wouldn't even let them walk up onto the pulpit. Like there was this like this superstition of who could step up onto the platform, right? Now, I, don't, I won't get into all that. I'm not trying to badmouth my church, but it's just that it created though a, a mindset for me that women were not able to, to communicate God's word in any way, right? So I had that kind of embedded in me. So, and, and, uh, and I didn't even realize that, right? So it took some time for me to say, oh, what in the world is going on here? And I had to dismantle that. And, and that I had a privilege as a male of just an assumption that if God was calling me to minister, of course God you know, could use me. And so I, I didn't realize that what my sisters were going through in that process, right? Of having to uh, justify their existence as, as it were. So I've taken it as a responsibility of mine to center my sisters whenever I can, because they have had this journey of trying to just, just you know, validate their own existence as servants of God, which I think is kind of ridiculous. But I, but I, but I was there. I mean, I saw what it was like. So I guess what I'm saying is there was a learning curve for me as a male, and uh, and I think that there's a, a an experience for people, whatever their level, relative level of privilege might be. Yeah, that and that um, that comes through in your book super uh, super clear as well. Um, you you talk a lot about uh, women and also the role that they play from the margins and um, and that it's such an interesting experience for me because growing up, uh, the first church I, I was in was a, a Methodist church, 
and our pastor was a female. And then my parents heard about this uh, Southern Baptist church down the road that had, ah, contemporary Christian music, not just hymns. <laughs> so they wanted to go check out that church. And when we got there, I remember uh, being told women can't be pastors. And I was like, are you sure? Like there's one right down the road. <laughs> and so, and then just, you know, through growing up and, and through different experiences and then um, I started to get mixed into some uh, some of the people within my early theological development uh, were within like the more reformed community, um, which, you know, they have their perspective as well. And it never quite sat right with me. And now luckily um, I'm blessed to serve in a church where we have three female pastors on staff. Oh. Um, and it's really cool. <laughs> yeah, amen. I mean, that's unusual. Amen. Oh yeah, very, very much so. Um, and so I, I think... I don't know. I there's mm. so there's so many layers to this this conversation. Indeed. Yeah, Indeed. and I yeah. think it's. I thought I just thought it was cool that you um, pulled from all the different layers. Yeah, uh, I'm glad you're seeing it. that, Josh. I mean, it's the book could have been way bigger in some ways. <laughs> I'm not an expert on those other things. I so I brought my expertise as a as a biblical scholar and as a pastor, and that's where I go. But I mean, I have a I have a friend that I've gotten to know just on the last couple of years. And he's helped me to think about this notion of ableism and how we center able bodies, you know? And, uh, and I just thought, you know, I hadn't actually even thought about that. So he helped to put that on the radar for me. His name is Michael Walker and he's a, he's a scholar, a theologian, and he's helped me to understand more um, in that way that, and I just started thinking about how Christianity mixed in with the nationalism has centered a particular concept of beauty a, a particular concept of humanity, a particular concept. And we, and we think it's, I say we, our, our white evangelicalism thinks that that's biblical because they say so. Um, and I think that the Bible is showing us something different and I, and I wanted to bring that out. So thanks for catching that. Yeah, most definitely. And I think the, um, the nationalism thing is something that's super interesting to me. Uh, all of my friends know that if you want to uh, like, hype me up or get me going start talking about the mix of nationalism and christianity and yeah. so i thought i was i thought it was super interesting because i hadn't thought about it from the perspective before but just the idea that um you talk about um how people from the margins tend not to confuse faith with nationalism because they are marginalized people so they don't have the ability the privilege to say oh look my nation and my right. faith are one and the same because they're being pushed down by the nation. So the faith yes. butts heads. Wow, you got that. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, obviously, if you're not at home in this country, then you're not celebrating, and whatever country that is, then your faith is something other than attached to that flag. And uh, so, you know, so when you have African Americans who come here and, and now, who were brought here, um, you know, enslaved here, now, of course, we're not monolithic. So there are some who are saying, yes, just I want to be. Uh, like every other American. So there's a certain uh, sense of wanting that nationalistic pride, perhaps, I guess. But, I guess, but, but what I'm saying is there's, a, there's also a, th a thread or a strand of, of African-Americans and others who have practiced their faith and are, or have come to a place where they can practice that and understand their relationship to Jesus. And it's not enmeshed in uh, a national identity. And I think that that was the case with the early Christian believers too. I mean, I would make a case that 
uh, and many have made the case that when they say Jesus is Lord, they're saying Caesar is not. And, and, we, and we see that their allegiance to God transcends their, their social status and their national identity. Yeah, that, man, I remember when I first started to encounter some of those, those ideas in, in college, and it, it seemed like, uh, I mean, the, the idea of nationalism and, and Christianity kind of, you know, butting heads um, or the, the blending that has happened. I remember feeling almost relieved, like, okay, so I'm not crazy that I think this isn't great. <laughs> <laughs> I read uh, I read Greg Boyd's Myth of a Christian Nation. Oh yeah, yeah, and it was like a like a, a breath of fresh air. Yeah, it got him in trouble, but oh, it did. It, it, <laughs> sure. Yeah, thanks. it did get him in trouble, but I think he uh, he owned it, and and you know credit to him for standing up for uh, for his you know sticking to his gun so to speak, and um, yeah, standing up for that. So but yeah, and and kind of um, in you know regards to the whole nationalism bit, I think this idea of like nonviolent opposition to injustice kind of gets brought into the conversation and you referenced that in your book. Um, yeah. And I think that's a really interesting conversation to have, especially around uh, our time today, right? Where we see the, the protests that have been going on with um, the Black Lives Matter movement, with the, the murder of George Floyd. And, uh, you know, the overwhelming majority of protests are very peaceful, but then people get all bent out of shape about this whole looting idea. And it's yeah. like this really convoluted thing. So I was interested in the just a little bit about the nonviolent opposition to injustice and yeah. um, your, your thoughts. Well, on that. I, yeah, I will. I mean, I, I don't believe the way of Jesus involves violence. So I'll say that straight out. Um, but I will also say, and I try to say this in the book, that you know, the, the folks who are fussing about looting have, I think, fundamentally misunderstood how anger works. And <laughs> because when, when, when white America is angry and has the power, their anger can show up in terms of legislation. They, it, can, it can justify discrimination. It can put kids in cages. It can marginalize whole segments of people. So yes, there are so so I guess there is a, a spectrum because it's I'm I'm no fan of destroying somebody's property or business, but I'm also saying that momentary anger and some of those kinds of actions are they pale in in significance when you talk about a whole a, a society that can uh, subjugate a whole group of people, force them onto reservations. I mean this is this is that's what white anger can do, right? And uh, so. So I'm just trying to make that distinction and make that clear, although I never would advocate for violence. Yeah, that, and um, I think we're, we're in very similar places there. I mean, I, when people ask me, you know, kind of where I hang my hat theologically, I steal Bruxy's word as of Anabaptish, you know, the SH on the end. Um, and as you know, non nonviolence is a, is a very, uh, you know, large, part of that yeah. and uh it's been i think that conversation has just been so interesting and it's so multifaceted and it's not uh forgive the pun but it's not so black and white as people mm. try to make it you know the the violence bit um mm -hmm. and so that that's been interesting uh just to wrestle with especially too because uh one of my best friends actually he lives with me currently um he is a minority and he is a police officer uh. and so talking with him 
about mm-hmm. what has been going on and how he's been treated has been yeah. an insanely complex conversation <laughs> yeah that there you know it's just i don't know well yeah i mean it is complex but the the part that i think um is maybe uh i don't know frustrating is from my christian standpoint is i want christians to be able to have conversation and actions that are not beholden to um particular political ideologies the problem is i think when i when the when the christian right has gotten so enmeshed in the nationalism and republican party and all that stuff that you often have this left that just simply wants that's doing the same thing in some ways with with the democratic party and i think christians were supposed to be this um alternative society and way of life that that while it may share some views from both parties perhaps it stands uh, apart from that and speaks prophetically to to the systems uh, to these parties and and presumably we could even have more than the two but the point is we we should be outside of those structures speaking to them and instead we find ourselves enmeshed in them and i think that that kind of loses some of the uh prophetic witness. We're no longer might from the margins. We're now enmeshed in the system. And I don't think that that's the way of Jesus. Yeah. Oh, most definitely. And you can't, yeah, just like, just like you said, you can't have bite from the margins if you're the one seeking all the big power all the time. That's right. Yeah. And, and, um, and I think just, you know, the idea of the, the kingdom of God and being a citizen of the kingdom of God first, um, and foremost and that you know for me that's that's kind of where i hang my hat and i have some unpopular opinions about voting and things like that um but uh yeah which is a whole nother conversation <laughs> <I'm sure. laughs> but um yeah but I, I think it's it's interesting that you you talk about how then the the prophetic uh voice or the prophetic vision is lost and so like what role do you see the prophetic voice and vision playing in this conversation yes prophets rise up typically speaking as especially if we look at the old testament um from well from the margins you know i mean we 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 get amos saying look i was just out there farming picking figs and you know taking care of sheep um so we have we have prophets but they are close to the problem in other words they're you know that's what they call standpoint theory that the people who have been oppressed are the best ones to understand it and to be able to recommend some change, right? So the prophets do that, they come from the margins. Uh, We have people who I think want to claim some prophetic identity, yet they are in the dominant, powerful place. That's not typically where the prophets come from. They might, but they speak to that powerful, dominant place. So my point is to say, when we want to to take over those positions, I say we now meaning Christians, not just white, but all Christians, then we are, we're, we're, we're going to lose this prophetic witness and edge because we're now enmeshed in the system. People talk about prophecy as speaking truth to power. Well, if you're part of the power, you know, then, then you're not, uh, you're going to get confused over what that truth is you're going to start looking at your self-interest and you're going to start to frame your message even in terms of what's going to keep me in power. That's, that's not the place of, of, of God's prophetic witness. So I, um, yeah, I mean, that's not popular either because every, obviously we want to do well in society. We want to 
uh, have a stable uh, existence in our society, good job and such, we want our kids educated, all of that. But I'm saying that does not mean then that we need to be pursuing a power, pr uh, privilege, prestige, and any other P like that you can think of, we, we, a position, because that loses then the prophetic that we bring as uh, followers of Jesus. Yeah, and I think that is so clearly uh, seen and played out, at least in my opinion. Um, I mean, when we look at the, the you know, political arena today and see how the pursuit of power has quite literally divided the body of Christ. Like when you, one of the things that frustrates me the most is when I drive past a church and they have a big, you know, Trump 2020 or a big Joe Biden 2020 sign in the, you know, in the front of their church, because you are now isolating, you know, half or I don't know what the percentages are, but you're, yeah. you're creating division by, by seeking out and basically uh, getting in bed with Rome, so to speak, or uh, getting in bed with the whore of Babylon to use, you know, I'd, I'd be comfortable using that language, at least, um, you know, from scripture. I'm yeah. a fan and of, Brian uh, too, right? Yeah, oh, most definitely. Brian's <laughs> on. Yeah. And Brian's been on the show before. Okay. Uh, yeah. Brian's a, a cool dude, but um, yeah. 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 And it's just, yeah. Well, you know, you, you mentioned that, I mean, creating the division, I think the, um, the churches uh, with the signs out. And I remember when I was younger, they would have these voting guides, the conservative white churches, have voting guys to tell you where, you know, when people should vote and how they should vote and such. And, and there's, there's this movement or feeling or tendency, especially among white evangelicalism. And I'm not a historian, but I'm a, I'm a pastor and I've been an observer. So I'll just put it in that caveat that um, I don't know if that's the creating the vision. I think they are tapping into a division and not realizing that they exacerbate a problem. So I'm not necessarily going to say that the Christians create the division by putting the signs out there. I'm saying that they have bought into something. They've been duped and, and they are willing to be part and parcel of a division rather than standing apart from it. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. Um, I think that's a really helpful way to look at it. That's good. Um, yeah, but that the, the role of the, the prophets, I think is really interesting because at least for me, um, growing up, we didn't really talk much about the prophets. Um, you know, we would talk about Paul mostly, right? You know, Romans, Ephesians, Galatians. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then we would learn about, you know, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And that, that was kind of the extent. Um, yeah. That was our canon within a canon, so to speak. Sure. Sure. But I've, I've noticed within, um, and hopefully this isn't like an overgeneralization, but I've noticed mm -hmm. within uh, the African-American community or the black community, um, prophets play such a huge role. And mm -hmm. I think now that I'm, I'm beginning to learn and understand, I can see why that is. And it makes so mm -hmm. much sense uh, yeah. because I'm recognizing the reason that, that you know, we weren't tapping into that is because we couldn't identify with the prophets. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's a good observation. <laughs> I think that you're hitting in a different way. You're getting at the thesis of the book. Cause I, I didn't frame it like that, but you, you are hitting on it because when we, because by focusing on some of the, those books that you mentioned, you know, the, that Canon within the Canon, uh, they're even doing that, not, not, not the process of doing that, I don't mean it, but what, what's selected out of those books tend to be 
the propositional things about what Jesus' death means, and then some ethical teaching, especially with the Pauline vice lists and, and catalog of virtues. So that tends to be the way Christianity is framed. Christ did something on the cross, now you avoid these sins. And, and it's just left there, rather than looking at the overarching a story of scripture of God moving and rescuing his people out of slavery and, and creating a whole new dynamic, this, this, this people of God. And then the prophet saying, Hey, you guys off track, come back, come back to the Lord. I mean, there's a whole story that's there that gets truncated when we, uh, when we just zero in on a few new Testament texts. Yeah. Yeah, And I, I I think too, what I'm realizing and, and what your book, uh, helped me, you know, kind of identify more and understand better as well as the role of uh, white supremacy and patriarchy and the the major influence they've had within the church. And you talked about this idea of like male Eurocentric theological uh, uh, hegemony. Hegemony. (laughs) Yeah, hegemony, sorry. Um, And how that's really uh, played into and influenced you know, the, the Christian faith. And I, I kind of had this, uh, come to Jesus moment. Um, uh, I don't remember how long ago it was, but I, I had remembered I was standing looking at, you know, the bookshelves that are behind me. And I was like, Hmm, all of these people that I read and who have influenced me and who I've been told to read and who have been told right. to influence me are white right. educated dudes. Right. Right. And like, that's, played such a major role and in influence uh, within yeah. much of Christianity. You know, it's funny because when we make that observation, I have noticed often that some of the white educated dudes, as you put it, <laughs> they get offended at that as if we're saying they shouldn't get to speak. No, I'm just saying, look, it's like the Agent Ross example I gave from Black Panther. You know, there's a time to speak, of course, but there's a time to listen to. And so when I was back in the 80s and, and going to Trinity Seminary because a pastor told me to go there, and, and I'm not trying to knock tr- Trinity, but they had an advertisement that would show up in the Christian publications, come study with the men who wrote the books. And they had a big stack of books with the names of their prominent new, uh, uh, biblical scholars and other, and historians, I mean, all the scholars. But they're, of course, all men. And that was the way the ad was phrased, come study with the men who wrote the books. And these are all white men whose books are stacked up there in the ad. And that's the appeal. So who are you going to get to come and study there? You're going to get white guys to come and study at your place, right? So now, of course, they've changed over the years from what I understand. But my point is, that's the way theological inquiry was, was framed. And I say in the book, it doesn't make it de facto wrong that you're a white person doing theology. The point is, you, you then forget that other people have theological views and questions and, and have made good inquiry. Um, we start to, I mean, I think it, 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 took, it took African-American scholars to push our thinking on a little book called Philemon. I mean, in Philemon, we have, you know, we have a, a, a standard narrative of this runaway slave who stole something from his master and, and, and we don't even get to hear from Onesimus in the whole thing, right? It took African-Americans to at least start asking some questions like, what's going on there in this book? And what, and maybe Philemon doesn't have his act together. And Paul's got to fix, you know, some things about Philemon. Maybe the book is really about Philemon. He has to, you know, he has to figure something out here. I mean, but, but my point is we started asking different questions because African-American scholars started studying the book. Same thing with some Old Testament texts. We've got some white scholars now saying David raped Bathsheba. But it took women to say, hey, there's a power dynamic here. 
And so now we've got white guys saying it and they're saying it you know, kind of confidently. But the point is they, they got pushed in a sense in their thinking because they had to read and, and absorb uh, questions and inquiry that came from other places. And, and there's many examples like that. My point is um, uh, we thought theology just meant white Eurocentric. And I say we, meaning the church there. I've been, I have to be more careful with my we's because sometimes I, I say we cynically and people don't get that. Um, but I'm saying that the white church centered these male white voices to the point that all of us have to have adjectives when we do our stuff. You know, there's African-American hermeneutics, there's post-colonial hermeneutics, there's feminist hermeneutics, but the regular hermeneutics is white Eurocentric, you know? So that's, that's what I'm pushing against. Yeah, it's 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 interesting because I mean I even I didn't recognize it at the time, but I even s- could see that play out, you know, in school because I I would have to take like, you know, uh, theology one, theology two, theology three, and then you could as an elective you could take African American theology or yeah. theology, and right. so I, it's like, yeah, it's, <laughs> and then yeah. it's it's crazy because I remember. Um, not at Messiah. So from people outside of Messiah, I don't want people to think Messiah is the one who told me this, but I remember being told, don't read James Cone. Don't read Howard Thurman because they are heretics or they are outside orthodoxy. But really what they meant was they were a perspective that wasn't a white male. There you go. And I started to pick up on that and I was like, oh my goodness. And then I read James Cone and Howard Thurman. I'm very grateful that I did. Good for you and that you read them as a younger guy. And, and look, there are white heretics and there's probably sure. some black heretics, right? Sure. But the point is, you know, I, I mean, I'm an educator and also I'm a student. I mean, I, like, I just like to keep learning. So yeah, I'm not going to agree with 100% of hardly anybody I read, you know, but the point is, I, but I still, my, th- my thinking gets shaped by, by different voices and I start, and I hopefully find a more excellent way along along my path. But when you when you start banning books and and such like like was happening I, in my life too, I mean, people were saying those kinds of things, and and you start to create this uh, notion that anything that comes out of uh, black thinkers or women thinkers is going to be uh, heretical. Then of course we're going to have the problems that we have now. Yeah, and then it just again it goes back to your thesis. It it defends it, it it puts us out of the place in the margins, and and those voices are then truncated, and the gospel is not preached. <laughs> yeah, well, you said it, amen. <laughs> yeah, so man, that's 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 really good. So thanks uh, for helping me think through those things. And um, I want to um, ask you one more thing, and kind of end on on try to get towards like a a positive. Um, outlook here moving forward. Um, so moving forward, what role do you see hope and love playing in this conversation? Yeah, well, I, I do have a chapter called The Power of Hope and a chapter called The Power of Love. And, uh, but I do say in those chapters, and, I, and when I get to my epilogue, that the hope and the love that I propagate is not about necessarily ending with white people feeling better about things, you know, because mm-hmm. once again, that would center their feelings. And that's, yeah. really not my point. that's really not my point or my goal. I would say that marginalized people who have been able to hold on to Jesus despite opposition, they show us what hope is like. And they, 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 they make hope um, real, as it were, right? So uh, once again, I turn my attention to those who 
have sojourned and with the odds against them and they hung on to Jesus, right? So, so for me, I'm saying that ultimately I'm, my hope is not in this world. My hope is not in that uh, people are going to get everything right and, and the tables will turn. So my hope has to transcend these circumstances, right? The same, and, and then when it comes to love, my love can't be a sappy sentimentality that just says, oh, we all hold hands and sing the same songs and, oh, I got too many stories about that. That my love has to, first of all, be rooted in who God is. And then I need to figure out what that love means for me. And as a marginalized person, I, f- I felt like I had to go on a journey of figuring out that I'm worthy of God's love and, and worthy of love because society treated me like, like I wasn't worthy. So, I had, so that journey of love wasn't just about how I treated them. It was about me understanding who I am. So, so I think that there's that part of love that has to happen to a self-awareness, a self, a, a connection to God and, and, and a respect for, for yourself that will then also turn into a, a care and concern for one's enemies even. Um, but, it, but there has to be some fundamental rootedness in, in, uh, that, that in understanding God's love for us. So, so hope and love are, again, I think modeled by people who did not uh, flirt, weren't given those things right away, right? They found that hope, they found that love in their relationship with God, despite the obstacles. So I'm saying that, yeah. Yeah, that that's so good and so helpful. And again, man, I don't, I think the thesis of your book is fantastic. <laughs> I love it, yeah. It, and it's 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 been so helpful because even just, growing up all my life, I've always been taught about like the countercultural message of Jesus and all this kind of stuff, but it was never this understanding of from the margins. It was always like, you know, don't listen to music with swear words. That's what Jesus is about. You know what I mean? Like, don't, don't, you know, watch these TV shows or whatever, but it's, man, it's so much deeper. It's so much better. It's so much more beautiful. Um, and, and what I'm finding is that uh, I recently found like some helpful language um, thanks to a scholar named uh, Josh McNall, who he wrote a book on the atonement called The Mosaic of Atonement. And so I stole his uh, mosaic analogy and it's, it's really um, helped me kind of uh, reframe my hope as well, because if the, the kingdom of God is made up of every tribe, every tongue, every language, every nation, the, the point isn't uh, to assimilate everybody into one thing. Because I know that I've also learned that's another problem that um, uh, the dominant culture tends to, uh, you know, as- try to assimilate people into, oh, you know, uh, if you become like us, then it's okay. That's right. um, and that's mm-hmm. not the point. And the, the, the mosaic seems to be a really good analogy because the body of Christ is like this mosaic made up of men, women, you know, black people, white people, Asian, Hispanic, all, you know, the, the full spectrum. And the point isn't that all of those pieces look the same. The point is that the different pieces are different and unique and they make up the larger image. And um, that's exciting. <laughs> well said. No, I, I appreciate that. I, I, I hadn't read that book, so I appreciate the reference, but you're getting, but you, I share that view. So thank you. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'll actually, you know what, I'll, um, I'll email you. We uh, interviewed uh, 
McNall on the, the podcast so I can share okay. if you want to get a sneak peek at his, okay. his work. Thank you. Uh, yeah, but Dennis, this has been um, great. And I'm super excited uh, for people to to get a hold of your book because it hasn't actually released yet. That's correct, right? Right. I mean, the early copies have come directly from the publisher. So there's been a few folks on social media with that. But but yeah, it comes out September 8th. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that, that's going to be cool. So listeners, um, a really helpful thing to do would be to, to pre-order that book. Uh, don't wait for it to come out. I know pre-orders are important. That's right. Uh, yeah, you're not going to want to miss out on this, guys. It's We've barely scraped the surface. Um, it's, I was telling uh, Dennis prior to, to us starting to record that his book is packed so densely with so much good stuff that uh, it would be impossible to have a, one conversation on it. <laughs> Thank you, Jeff. So, you want to check that out. And then also, where can uh, where can people go to find you if they want to uh, connect with you more? Yeah, thanks. I, I My social media handles are pretty much all Rev Dr. Dre, R-E-V-D-R-D-R-E. I'll, um, I'm there at Facebook, uh, Instagram, and Twitter, all Rev Dr. Dre. And, and pretty soon my website will be up, which is also RevDrDre.com. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> So I, that's so funny. I, that's super clever. The Dr. Dre thing. I just figured out why, why that worked. Because your middle initial is R, right? That's right. That's yeah, right. That's <laughs> and, uh, and I'm a rev and a doctor. Yep. That's great. I love it. That's so cool. <laughs> I just put that together. Right. Also, well, yeah, guys, be sure to go check out those things. And then we'll link. So I'll link the book in the, the show notes. Um, I'm also going to link your uh, commentary on First Peter because I think, oh, uh, yeah, that's super interesting. Well, and, you know, I'll mention too. I mean, I, I'm not too self-promoter, but the same publisher, Herald Press, I have a book with them, a small book on called "What Is the Bible and How Should We Understand It." Oh, cool. So, um, so I'll let, I'll just want to make you aware of that too because you can connect that um, with my stuff. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. I'll link that as well. That's great. Cool. Well. Uh, Dennis, the way we, we typically shut things down around here is I say, go Caps. And then Marty <laughs> says... <laughs> Good for you. All yeah, right. Marty says, go Blackhawks. And uh, on behalf of you, go Blackhawks. And then I say, peace and love, guys. <laughs> uh.